Would you join me in the fourth chapter of the book of the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 4, and I only want to read verse 16, which is the final verse of that chapter, the Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 16. Actually, let me read verse 1 and then verse 16. Verse 1, clause A. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. And then verse 16. Awake, north wind, rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love. Taste its finest fruits. Amen. You may be seated. So Beautiful is the title of the exposition this morning of chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon. The title does not originate in my own imagination. I borrow it from the R&B singer Music Soul Child, which he, in 2008, provided for us a song entitled Soul Beautiful. And what I want you to do is to listen, if you can, very carefully to the lyrics of that song as he highlights in his expression about the one to whom he loves how beautiful and how valuable that person is to his life. Mark, play that track for me, please. So right, I don't 
conservative barriers as real as I'm interested. If you could engulf yourself in the lyrics, you would hear something very pointed that's constantly elevated throughout the fourth chapter of the Song of Solomon. Look at verse one. His very first line is, you, you are beautiful, my darling. The lyrics of the song, you, my baby, my lover, my lady, all night you make me want you. It drives me crazy. I feel like you were made just for me. Tell me if you feel the same way. When you're not here, you don't know how much I miss you. The whole time on my mind, it's how much I'm going to make you feel so good. Like you know I could. Tell me if you feel the same way. The beautiness of being expressed is reciprocated by knowing that once one is loved and cared for and recognized for the beautiness that they are, it is in return expressed back unto someone. It underscores the old saying, when you give, you should in return receive. If you plant, there is something you should gain in return back. But the chorus of the song to me is the game breaker. It, what, it's make, it makes the song what it is. The chorus says, cause it just feels so right. I don't wanna waste no time. If I had to choose, I know I'm gonna always choose to be with you. Cause girl, you, don't you know, girl, you know you're so beautiful. When you're not here, uh, you again, you know how much I miss you the whole time you're on my mind cause you are so beautiful. That's, that's what the writer of the song elevates but it's also what the writer in the Song of Solomon elevates repeatedly in this fourth chapter. And yet he leaves us with some very critical contributions to understanding why recognition of one's beauty is so extreme extremely important. 
first he gives us, what I want to argue is life-changing compliments, life-changing compliments. For some, it's arguably a gift. For others, we have to kind of work at it, but the provision of being complimentary seems to magnify the strength of a person instead of the weakness of an individual. Remember, we're trying to locate what's good, what's powerful, what's elevating, what's important in an individual's life and in the song and in the Song of Solomon chapter 4, he begins by giving her a compliment, telling her how beautiful she is. In fact, it is said that one kind word can change someone's entire day. Have you ever thought about that? How valuable just simply making a kind word to someone, showing a kind gesture, but paying a kind compliment can actually change their day. Here's what I like. When F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing a letter to his wife Zelda, here's a line that I thought was so powerful. Here's what he told her. He said, you are the finest, the loveliest, the tenderest, and most beautiful person I have ever known, and even that is an understatement. Can you imagine if someone came repeatedly and told you that kind of compliment? Listen to what he says. You are not only the finest, and we can define that in a number of different ways, but just the usage of the language alone. You are the finest and the loveliest and the tenderest and beautiful person I have ever known, and even saying that is an understatement. It shows how the magnifying of a compliment can pay a great deal to a person's life. Jill Scott says uh, this way, I just think it's silly to be stingy with compliments. If you see someone and they strike you as beautiful in any way, why not let them know? Why not tell them how beautiful they look on that day. Do, do you not know when you see someone who is adoring in their appearance and just tell them, you look beautiful today. My, you look very handsome. Do you not know what that person changed in terms of their own mentality could experience in that moment? They just put on clothes that day just trying to go to work to get through the day, but you making a compliment have revised their whole mentality and perception of who they are, all because you made a compliment. Now, there are some people who don't like compliments, who don't care for compliments, believe it or not. I've read two comments that kind of struck me. One said, compliments are only lies in court's clothes. Who doesn't want a compliment? Another person says, compliments make me feel uncomfortable because I feel like I'm being lied to. But when you read the Song of Solomon, this, this young man, Solomon in chapter 4, is highlighting and he's magnifying the importance of paying compliments. But if you read verse 16, this chapter highlights, more importantly, the day of the wedding. 
He is trying to introduce us to the importance of that person who is central to your heart, how important it is to pay compliments to that individual. And in the first seven verses of this fourth chapter, all he does is highlights by way of compliment, but I want you to notice the detail to which he takes to highlight how beautiful this individual is to him. And remember, we're reading poetry. We're reading a narrative that's told to us in a very poetic expression. So there is metaphorical language repeatedly. And notice how you have to read through the lines. And, and there's one verse uh, that I'm not going to expound upon because remember I told you it's, it's too sensual for folk in the congregation, and, and I'm just gonna give you the spiritual side of it, but it's heavy, and if I try to expound on it for you, I promise you, you'd leave this room never the same. So I'm not gonna give you much exposition, but I'm gonna give you an insight to it, but watch, follow me in your Bible, follow me in the first seven verses as we look at how detailed Solomon is in giving us what I call the first point of the sermon, descriptive pictures descriptive pictures descriptive pictures now why do I say that because when 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 someone hears your compliment uh, there is something about being complimentary particularly and specifically and for the person whom is your wife or husband being specific means a lot to that individual watch the text in verse 1 after he tells her how beautiful he is, she is, looks at it, it says, your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Look what he says. Your eyes, in the beauty of its mystery, is so mysterious as I look at them that, that when I look at them behind the veil, they cause me to want to go behind the veil to see what's actually coming through in your eyes. It's true that the eyes are the windows into the soul. It's true that the eyes can say a great deal about an individual, can tell you something, can convey thoughts in a very powerful manner. And he says, your eyes drive me crazy. Now, some of us can't pick up on that because probably ain't nobody ever told us how our eyes look to them. You might want to look into people's eyes. I shouldn't say people, to that person's eyes who means something critical to you. Look at, the, look at the next line. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Now, imagination coming down a slopey hill and the wind is blowing and the hair is blowing in the waves. In other words, he's suggesting that your hair is so adoring and adorning that when I look at it, it's as if the wind is blowing through it. Tell me that brother ain't adding up some brownie points in his journey. Look, look at the next line. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shown and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth matched its twin. In other words, you've been to the orthodontics lately. You, you, you keep them clean. They're gorgeous. Look at what he's doing. He's looking at every intimate aspect of this woman on her wedding day. 
Look at the next line, verse 5, or verse 3. Your lips are like scarlet ribbons. Your mouth is inviting. Can you hear the sensuality in that description? What's interesting about that verse is this, along with one other passage in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2, I believe it is, is the only time that the word scarlet thread is used in scripture. Why is that important? In the book of Joshua, scarlet thread is used by Rahab hanging a scarlet thread in her window so that when Joshua and his army comes through in Jericho, they will see that thread hanging in the window and pass over Rahab's family in judgment and in this text he tells her that your lips watch the analogy is like a scarlet ribbon the scarlet thread represents redemption he's trying to tell her your lips are so inviting that they redeem me from a dark space of loneliness that's heavy. Let me let that go. Let me go to the next line. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. The radiance of how your face is shining through the veil is inviting to me. Remember I told you he's giving descriptive pictures. It's going to get deep on you. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jewel with the shields of a thousand heroes. Now, remember, he, he is using pictures to help us see that when he looks at her neck, what he sees is strength. He sees strength that perhaps he is visionarily looking into the future. What strength that will be in helping me in my own journey? He sees her as strength. Here it is. Your breasts are like two dawns, two fawns, should I say, two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. That means that they are moving. Use your imagination. Perky. <laughs> Exciting. Inviting. Uh, it, so it's a tragic for us to think that the Bible says nothing about sexuality and says nothing about being complimentary. In fact, I would contend that the older we get, the more valuable those complimentaries are because we want to still know that we are still in the same light in your eyes as we were when we first met one another. And that's, that's what he's doing. He's painting a role for us to understand there's nothing wrong with complementing aspects of the human anatomy. Look what he says. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, for you are all together, once again, beautiful, my darling. Paying that descriptive compliment that she will know that she is the only apple of his eye and yet he's using language not derogatory not what I hear in contemporary lingo the way we describe women using words that are in their derogatory expression 
that we would not, you, listen, if you can't say to your uh, loving individual what you would say to your mother, it's probably the wrong language. Look what he calls her. You are my darling. You are beautiful. He simply tells her that you are so gorgeous that I'm not afraid to tell you. Here's another line. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, your lips are as sweet as nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. <laughs> Do you hear what he's saying? Here's a comparison. In Psalm 19, I think it's verse 10, David says that the word of God is sweeter than honey. And David is making a comparison for us of how good the word is when you taste it. And Solomon is telling his glorious bride how sweet it is when he tastes her mouth. Can that, is that soaking in in your mind? Can you feel that? Oh, I guess you can't. Let me move to the next one. Uh, verse 13. Oh, here's, here, here, here. Let, let me help you in verse 13. Because verse 13 is not only descriptive, but it's, it's heavily left to the imagination. Depending on what version you're reading. Some of them may say branches, your branches. Uh, some of them may say your limbs. Some of them may say uh, your outstretch. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and it says your thighs. And when I read that, I was like, ooh, I wonder if I should actually read that at Zion because listen to what it says. Your thighs, your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, hinted with nard, nard in saffron, fragrance calamus, and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrhs, and aloes, and every other lovely spice. Yeah, somebody said, mm. and and th that's the verse that I said I'm not going to give you much exposition on. I know it's going to be hard for you to handle, but just listen to what he says. He is identifying a specific area of her anatomy and suggesting how glorious it is. Now, this is not for the faint in heart. I'm just going to throw this out there for you. This is good for those of you who are married. Listen, you ought to be so complimentary. So complimentary. Just read the text. I don't have to tell you anything. Read the text. Look, look what he says. This is not for the conservative religious person, obviously. But he is saying loving you sexually drives me crazy. Here's my final line, because I know, I know you're scringing in your seat. If we, can't, if we can't talk about sex in church, and I ain't talking about the classroom, I'm talking about where I got your attention, where are we going to talk about it at? Uh, because if you won't talk about it here, particularly talk about young people, I can tell you where we will get it. And I can tell you how it will be defined. 
and I can tell you how graphically it will be expressed to them. And when it happens, you're going to wish a million times we had had that conversation in church where we can actually openly talking about sexuality. We are so hypocritical when it comes to certain discussions in church. We won't talk about sex, but we're doing it. How does that make sense? And we tell our young men and young daughters, don't have sex until you get married. And they're trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? What do I do with all these feelings, with all these rushing hormones? And what happens if I see a naked picture of a man or a woman? And I wonder in my own mind, what does that mean? And we don't tell them from scripture, so they learn it from the streets. And the streets will not just tell them but we'll demonstrate for them. Look at verse 14. As I said again, when he said in 13 about the thighs that shelter, see, read between the lines. Remember we're reading poetry? It shelters a paradise. And if you don't think yourself is gratifying to your other behalf, then you need to have a mental checkup. Read verse 13 and 14 real close. I'm going to move on because I know that's kind of troubling somebody. So he, he gives descriptive pictures. But watch this. In descriptive pictures, he's highlighting the importance of being complimentary. But there's a second thing. He looks at her character. He looks at her character because he knows that the personality the mentality and the temperament, the disposition of a person is extremely important. The word character comes from a Greek word that means to put a stamp on or to make an impression on the soul. See, we love God because God in his character has made a stamp on our soul in his goodness and in his grace and in his mercy. And it's a constant stamp that's repeatedly employed. And so we are never, says Jeremiah in Lamentations, morning by morning, new mercies we see. So we're never ever left without seeing the goodness of God on a daily basis. Every day when you wake up, if you are alive and well, and if you woke up, you must be alive. And if you're well you should be able to lift your voice and thank God again for impressing upon us the presence of God's character and here's what he's doing he's highlighting the importance of her character here's a word that comes from the late John Wooten who used to coach the basketball team at UCLA he used to tell his basketball players this critical statement that I find to be so true if you really take and digest what it says he used to tell them be more concerned with your character than with your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what other people think about you what are you and he's looking at her in this fourth chapter and saying to himself, I know who she is because her reputation is not great. Her reputation is that she's probably poor, uh, she's dark, she has self-esteem issues, and yet he sees beyond that. He sees her beauty 
and calls her beautiful. And you ought to be shouting this morning that God didn't look at your reputation for if he looked at our reputation, we would never measure up to the righteousness of God, but he saw what was deeper on the inside of us and saved us right where we are. And don't you know that every single day when we fall short of God's glory, it's the character that God looks and sees that I know you may have made a mistake, but I see something deeper on the inside of you and something broader that I'm trying to develop in you and eventually you will get to where I want you to be not reputation and here we are in modern society we place so much value on a person's reputation and care little about their character and we do the same thing in church except God does the very opposite. How do I know that? Go back to 1 Samuel, remember? When the prophet Nathan was sent, was sent to, to call out all of Jesse's sons, Jesse's sons had the reputation of being possible candidates for the kingdom. But when the prophet goes through all of Jesse's sons, and every time he looks back to God, God says, that's not, that's not the one I want. And then the prophet says, is this all you have? And Jesse says, I got one more boy, but he's just a sheep, a shepherd kind of guy who's out there taking care of my sheep. And bring him to me. And when he arrives, God says to the prophet, that's him. Because his character was not the same as that of a reputation but he was exactly what God wanted and this man is telling us in the Song of Solomon chapter 4 that she may not measure up to everybody's reputation but she means the world to me so look what he says don't care about what people say about you remember your character is what you really are and the character of this narrative shifts for Solomon and he becomes a protector. He wants to build a shelter and create safety for her. Follow me now in the text. So he does something different. He calls her, my second point, from dangerous places. See, the first point is he uses uh, descriptive pictures to define who she is but watch in verse 8 he calls her from dangerous places why would I call him dangerous places he's he's going to call her out of a space perhaps where she lives and not just physically but mentally emotionally because she has been a person who has been damaged even by her own family Look what he says in verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Here's something to notice. Go back to verse 1. What does he call her? My darling. Watch the escalation. In verse 8, he calls her my bride. May that mean much to you, but when you move from darling in the Old Testament to bride, that's a tremendous leap. That means that you have accepted and embraced this person into your space and you've actually fulfilled Genesis 2 and 24. The two has become one and you've meshed your hearts together. 
But look what he does. He calls her. Specifically, look at the closing lines. He calls her from the mountain, says the text, where the leopards live and the den where the lions live. He calls her out of dangerous spaces where even emotionally she is constantly in a battle to reassure herself that she is fitting for the groom. She constantly challenges herself that she is good enough. Some people struggle with thinking that they're not good enough to be loved. And here he is reassuring her, come out of that dangerous space that will ruin you emotionally and mentally. But notice what he does not do. He doesn't demand it of her, he invites her. He not only invites her, but he calls her with a sense of compassion to say unto her, I am here to bring you to a greater space of life. Here's a word for you. Sensual anticipation must be clothed with words of safety and security if it expects a warm reception. Here's how I translate that. How you ask a person may determine how you receive from a person. In James 4, James says, in praying to God, uh, you have not because you ask not, and then when you do ask, you ask with the wrong motive. And maybe I think in Song of Solomon 4, he's trying to tell us there in that eighth verse, as he calls her from the dangerous space, he's inviting her to another level of life that he wants to share with her that he has already embarked upon himself. And I'm back to a point that I constantly tell you, if a person just does not contribute to me, then they're probably withdrawing from me. And if they keep withdrawing from me, eventually you will come up non-sufficient funds. Your bank account will be empty. He uses descriptive pictures he calls her from dangerous places, and that's what relationships should encounter, calling a person out of a dangerous space that we might move them into a lively, life-producing space. But he also invites us to check out his delightful pleasure. Look at verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10 tells us how he invites, and how should I say she invites him because of who she is. Watch this. You have captured my heart. And notice the use of two personal pronouns, me and my. You've captured my heart, my treasure, my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes. Can, can you hear the power that girlfriends got over that brother and at least he's willing to admit it. Just one look from you stops me in my track. Look what it says, verse 10. Uh, With a single jewel of your necklace, your love delights me. Uh, your love is better than wine, my treasure, 
my bride, your perfume more fragrance than spices. You, you know what he says there? Because wine was a prominent usage in the day. He said to her, when I drink of you, you don't even give me a hangover. That, that's what he means. You, that, that means I can just drink all that I want and I won't even get a hangover. That's how good and sweet your love is. Mahatmas Gandhi says, when we talk about satisfaction, because that's what he's talking about when he talks about delightful pleasure, he's saying I'm satisfied in you. If we translate that spiritually, we can hear God in his graciousness inviting us, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, God satisfied in tasting of him and he doesn't give us a hangover. But in tasting of his goodness, it's an attraction that I constantly want to go back and get over it. In fact, it's an intoxication to a point where I'm really not drunk. I'm just excited in who Jesus is. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room when folk walked by and heard them shouting up there. They said they must be drunk on wine. And Peter says, no, it's too early in the day for us to be drunk on that kind of wine. But we are a bit intoxicated. But we intoxicated by glory. We intoxicated by the anointing. We intoxicated by the power of God. We intoxicated by his mercy, by his love, by his everlasting comfort it's a delightful pleasure so much so that I don't know about you but I can't do without it every single week I gotta have some word Mahatmas Gandhi says satisfaction lies in the effort not in the attainment full effort is full victory now you may not understand that but here's a translation Job said Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, Job says, even when it doesn't work out to my best advantage, the journey is so good that I, I'm just grateful that God let me experience his provision in the journey. And Solomon was saying to the beauty of this young woman, she is not only so gorgeous, but verse 9 and 10, she is so enlightening, far better than wine that chasing her. And I can do that because she is my bride and my treasure. He lay claim on what he is about to encounter. Then the last line, in verse 12, 15, and 16, Solomon says, let me introduce you to the fullness of who this woman is. She invites me and takes me to a divine paradise. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, it says, you are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Now, some of your translations may say, 
that she is a spring or a garden locked up. If I wanted to argue this text from a very sociological perspective, I would start right there because that text suggests that because her body represents a paradise, it's locked up and only given away, given away at her choice. So if I was arguing for this from the standpoint of domestic violence, I would contend that rape is a violation of her choice and even forcing her into a sexual compromise is a violation of her choice. Here's what it says in layman's term. You can't get what she won't give you. In fact, if she doesn't say yes, leave it alone. That's what it says right there in verse 12. It's suggesting to us that he's saying that because we are engaged and because we are married on, we're going to be married on this day, that she is saying yes to open up paradise to him. That's why marriage experiences consummation on the wedding night. It's the bride's way of saying, yes, I'll give my all to you. And that's why whenever we're born again, it's consummation when God engulfs us with the Holy Spirit. It's God's way of saying, yes, I give my all to you. Do you see the parallel? Don't get caught up on the sexual nature of it because it's an act of giving. That's what Psalm is trying to remind us of the importance of giving. That's why Jesus says, give and it shall be given back to you. That's not just monetarily. That's in the moral principle of life, in the ethics of life. Giving, and it will be given back to you. But in verse 12, she's making it clear, and he's making it clear, that's a guarded space, which invites us to see the value and the sacredness of a woman's body. And I don't have time to give you exposition on that, but my, how we've lost the respect of the female anatomy, particularly the manner in which we describe her, all of the derogatory terminology. But look at verse 12. He says it's a private garden. He compares her to a garden because he is, again, metaphorically saying to us that she is paradise to me. You know what he borrows it from? Genesis chapter 2. She's paradise to me, and I have to work hard to make sure that the serpent doesn't slither in and disturb my paradise. That's why Peter says to us that are married, husbands, you got to make sure you pray with your wife, because if you don't, your own prayers may be hindered. And maybe we can learn also from this text is why it's important, particularly if we're in the dating mode, of that you establish the importance of not only maintaining your sanctity and your sacredness, but how prayer will keep you at bay when your hormones go crazy. Look what he says. He calls it private garden. And then in verse 15, he calls it a peaceful garden. Look what he says. You are a garden fountain, a fresh, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountain. He's saying to her, when I think of you and when I'm with you, I feel nothing but excitement and joy and I feel life. And that's the way we ought to be when we're in relation with people. 
life, the giving of life. You, you ever been around people that when you get around them, they make you feel so invigorated and exciting, and then there are others who make you wish you had went in the opposite direction when you saw them come. Because you know they're going to suck the life out of you. But he says, when I see you, what I see is a well of fresh water, a stream flowing from the mountain. And look what words he uses that I think is quite interesting in verse 16, which is a call to let us consummate our journey. He uses the word blow. He uses the word blow because in moving of the wind, it provides hope. In the Old Testament, the wind is used, of course, as the separating tool between the wheat and the shaft. It will blow away what's not needed and yet maintain what is needed. And he is highly suggesting unto us as he is saying, let us allow, look at verse 16, blow wind from the north and the south, blow on my garden. Maybe he's saying, rise up. Maybe he's praying, God, blow on us. Consecrate us. Separate the wheat from the shaft. Move out what we don't need. And might I suggest that many times we come into relationship with baggage, particularly if we've been at this place before, we may have some baggage that we might drag into another relationship and we really need God to help us get rid of that baggage so that we can have a chance at making this a prosperous journey. This to someone who's so beautiful to him. Look what he says, blow on us. Blow on my garden. So not only me, but blow on my garden, her, and spread its fragrance all around. And then look at the reverse of the language. Come into your garden, my love, and taste its finest fruit. So when God says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, we have to also sort of hear as he moves forward and once we taste of the goodness of God, that there is yet something that draws us back. And most importantly, we want to share the beauty of what we have. That's why experiences, with one, experiences that we share with one another is so critical in life development. Unfortunately, in our culture, we don't seek to learn much from those who's been along the way before but we would be surprised of what perhaps uh, many pitfalls we could avoid in marriage if we listen to some of that old-fashioned behavior or old-fashioned wisdom, as it's called. Just because we transition in culture and become more contemporary doesn't mean it's the best for us. It may happen to culture at large, but remember, as a Christian, you're not a culture at large. So you are a distinct culture, Distinct in the sense that there are certain expectations and certain particularities that we ought to lean ourselves toward. And if we miss that, we find ourselves frustrated. 
and we kind of wonder why is it so hard for us to get ahead I, I've, I've seen enough marriages to know that sometimes people can't figure out why we keep struggling at the same thing over and over again one reason because we just don't listen another reason because we don't like to admit that we are a part of the problem and number three, we don't want to admit that in order to fix the problem, I, not my other person, I have to change. So we found love on a two-way street, but lost it on a lonely highway. And that's where it is, on the lonely highway, because we've pushed it over there. We forgot to compliment. We forgot to recognize character. And in verse 16, we forgot to celebrate. Celebrate who it is that we've decided to engage and then to commit ourselves to. And what I love about God is God says, don't ever forget that I want celebration all the time. So we have to take on the mentality, I will bless the Lord at all times and his name shall forever be in my mouth. Praise shall forever be in my mouth. But the inviting, oh come, let us magnify the Lord together. Let us worship and glorify his name because the Lord is good. There's a recognition there that God compliments and God yet builds our character. But God says, I also want celebration into, into his courts with praise and thanksgiving because the Lord is good. And what I hope you walk away this morning realizing is you not only are beautiful yourself, but tell somebody else how beautiful they are. Compliment. Touch the character in them. Now you might say, Reverend, the character, I, I have yet to see it. Keep digging. It's in there somewhere. Find it. And if you're saying that about your husband and wife, remember you married them. Must have been a character somewhere. Go back and find it. And then celebrate. You know, the longer we go in marriage, it's an unfortunate thing. I think it's just a habit of creatures, and it takes work not to do this. We sort of lose the connection of what we did to first engage ourselves to the person. You know, we stop doing the little things that we, we did when we were dating, and, and then when we first got, we stop all of the very important things over time, taking for granted that they appreciate, and they probably do appreciate what, we've, what we have done, but they also want to continuously receive that. So if you held the car door uh, 25, 30 years ago, she probably wants you to hold the car door again today. <laughs> If you pull the chair out 40 years ago, she probably wants you to pull the chair out again. In fact, more today than 40 years ago, she could pull it out herself then, but she needs your help now. If we were complimenting how good he looks and how great she looks 40 years ago, we want to hear it now because things have changed in the anatomy. 
I don't have as much hair as I used to have. And even though I'm bald, I want you to tell me how good my hair looks, even though there's no hair up there. Tell me anyway. Your hair looks good bald, baby. You, do, you look different bald. Yeah, well, you like it bald as long as you're happy, I'm happy. We chuckle, but it's a reality. Do I still look sexy at 65 like I did at 25? When my body doesn't have the same elasticity as it used to, stuff look different. There y'all go trying to be religious on me again. You know, when you look in the mirror every morning, you can see a change. Oh, a change. Oh, what a change has come over me over 40 years. And it happens. It's life. but I would want my husband and my wife to still hold me like they did when I was a tiny little thing. Now I'm 200 pounds larger. You just got more now to hold on to. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm trying to tell you? I mean, I really don't think y'all do because you're looking at me like I'm half crazy. And I think part of that is because you become so used to not getting compliments. And a person not recognizing the character that's deep in you. And a person not celebrating who you are. We become comfortable with not having. And I just think there's something problematic about that. Not having. You can do it all by yourself. Did you hear what I said? You can do all that all by yourself. If I'm engaged or married to somebody who doesn't have a compliment, who doesn't recognize my character, who doesn't have a means of celebrating me, then can I do that by myself? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why you got to encourage yourself sometimes. You got to compliment yourself. You got to celebrate yourself. You got to tap into your own character. As Victor Hugo says, the only problem with compliments is if you receive a person's compliment, you may have to receive their criticism. And criticism is not always constructive. But I'll take Jesus' compliments and I'll take God's criticism because it's always constructive. I ain't always happy with it, but I know it's constructive. I know it's going to build me. The glory about chapter 4 is it's the same as chapter 5. The only difference is in chapter 4, he's speaking, and in chapter 5, she's speaking. And I can't wait to chapter 5 because I'm going to lead off with Angie Stone. Y'all anticipating that? Angie Stone. My brother, black brother, uh, you got your Wall Street brother in you. Y'all know that? Because that's what she says in chapter 5. Now, now, she gets real descriptive, same outline, real descriptive, and she says something particularly about his reproductive organ. If you don't want to hear it, don't come to church next Sunday because it's, it's going to be deep. Now, you know what's going to happen. If you don't show up, you know I know you stayed away because you didn't want to hear it. Lord, sanctify the word as it already is pure. 
and give us ears that would receive the gospel 